Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again this morning to the fourth chapter of Luke's, the Acts of the Apostles, where we are going to be considering verses 13 through 22. That's Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. You can find that passage either beginning on the bottom of page 1072 in your pew Bibles or on page 20 and 22 in your Acts journals this morning. Last week, we saw that the gospel of Jesus Christ always does something to those who hear it. It is never neutral, and it is never ineffective. It always does something to the one who, by the grace of God, hears it. And there are, of course, those who hear it, And having had their eyes open, their ears open by the gracious spirit of Almighty God, they actually embrace the good news of the gospel for all that they're worth. They hear the truth, they know the truth, and they, as a result, trust wholeheartedly the truth himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are those who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, They are translated from death to life. And beloved, we should be praising God for this miracle every day of our lives. It should be the reason that we're here this morning. To celebrate in worship of our risen and reigning King. This is the stuff of life for those who are called by the grace of Almighty God to salvation through Jesus Christ. However, as I've said many, many times from this pulpit, not everyone responds to the truth in this way. The gospel also does the work of division. It divides. It separates. It's separating the sheep from the goats. It's separating the harvest from the weeds. It's doing the work of that great division in all of mankind. And so we began, we began to see the other side of that divide last week. As there were those who were actually stirred up to wrath over the truth of Jesus Christ being proclaimed on the temple grounds. And Peter empowered by the Holy Spirit, uses the occasion of being confronted by the Sanhedrin and arrested and tried for his faith, he uses that occasion to preach the gospel to his enemies. However, of course, they were unreceptive. Their hearts were hardened. And we can see the work of Satan in trying to thwart the growth of the gospel and the progress of the church of Jesus Christ. And we can certainly see the effect and the brokenness of men because of sin all over this narrative in chapter 4. Satan, though he frustrates, though he accuses, though certainly he troubles, is still ultimately a defeated foe. Christ is the triumphant Lamb upon His throne for all of eternity in the book of Revelation. Satan's power ultimately was put down at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who arose from the grave triumphant, victorious over sin, death, and the devil. 
So he cannot, Satan cannot, he will not ever stop Jesus Christ from bringing his children home. But he will do all that is in his power to frustrate that work, to aggravate it. And so we see that the opposition must come and must try to destroy the peace of those who are basking in God's grace. In this instance, because of the lame man who had been healed and what that healing ultimately pointed them towards. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had come to restore what had been so heavily damaged by the fall of mankind. He will come again, we are told, to make all things new. He will return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more pain. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more fear and anxiety. There will be no more death. And even as the people are wrestling with that beautiful truth, here come the religious leaders of the day to throw shade on the good news of the gospel by arresting... In a show of muscle and authority, Peter and John, for healing this man and then daring to speak of the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Beloved, I'm not going to rehash all of it again this morning, but I do want to set the scene for this reaction of the Sanhedrin that is in the text before us this morning. These men, the Sanhedrin, are very, very agitated at what was taking place on the temple grounds. And they were seeking to bring it to an immediate halt by force if necessary. They would have been considered old Israel. We talked about it last week. They had rejected Jesus' messianic claims. And as they approached this scene, they themselves were bent on somehow bringing scandal to this name. The name of Jesus, if in any way they could. We were told that they handled Peter and John roughly. They laid their hands on them and carted them off to jail until they could appear before the Sanhedrin on the next day. They made a scene. It was a spectacle. And it was for a purpose. These men wanted to strike fear into the hearts of not just Peter and John, but the countless onlookers that day, that this kind of thing would not be tolerated and would be punished. And I pointed out that these men are very, very dangerous enemies for the apostles. We need to understand they have the full authority of the synagogue. They had played a part and murdering Jesus Christ because of the threat that he presented to their power. They had the authority to arrest. They had the authority to throw out of the synagogue and all of its blessings to its members to excommunicate. They even had the authority to execute those who appeared to be living contrary to their man-made regulations. And I think it's important to point that out. These men no longer held to the actual law of God. I've heard people at times be defensive of the Pharisees. These are the enemies of God. They had perverted the law and put in its place man-made regulations by which to measure their own righteousness. 
They had ripped away, they had ripped it away from its first intended use to show the people of God not only their sin, but their desperate need for a perfect righteousness of someone else. Another whom only God could provide. One that they should have been looking for. They should have very much been anticipating. But they, of course, had other motives than the Word of God for doing what they did. They did not truly know God. The rulers of the synagogue did not truly know God. And so they did not really fear God. They feared public opinion. They loved power. They were clinging to their right to be over everyone else in Israel. They loved the pomp and the celebrity of their position. But it's important to point out, beloved, they did not love the truth. And so in this atmosphere of intense intimidation, they gave Peter and John their golden opportunity to simply deny the name of Jesus Christ. Deny Him and go free. To be with those they loved. To spend no more of their time in the jails of the temple guard. What does Peter do with this opportunity? He uses the time to preach the glorious truth of the gospel to the very ones who were persecuting him for it. He points them again to the name above all other names and he tells them the time for salvation is now and that it is available to them in no other name than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter uses the occasion for supposed freedom to truly love his neighbor more than himself and show them the precious way of life. Beloved, I can speak for myself here in saying that it's more than just a little bit convicting, isn't it? We separate ourselves from others over such petty little things. We make enemies of those who disagree with us over ultimately worthless things. We hold on to grudges. We gossip. We tear down where we ought to be building up. And we look at these apostles and we see them speaking the words of life and peace and sweet freedom to enemies that are bent only on their destruction. Peter faces imprisonment and death at the hands of these men and he says, you too can run to Jesus. And this morning, I want for us in the text that's before us to consider ultimately what lies behind such boldness as we see here, such wisdom, such love as we see in the response of Peter to the enemies of God. So I'd like you to follow along in your Bibles as I read from the Holy Word of God. Acts chapter 4, again I'll pick up with verse 13 and read through verse 22. Hear now the word of our Lord. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred amongst themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. 
so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Finding no way of punishing them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity of coming before your word. We're grateful for the ordinary means of grace that you give us to feed faith and strengthen it and nourish it within your people. We pray that your spirit would fill us, clear our hearts and our minds of all that distracts us this morning. And for this time, Father, let us give our attention to the wonderful truth of your word so that hearing it through the power of your spirit, we may be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's safe to say that the members of the Sanhedrin were obviously not expecting this kind of response to their threats. Rather than sort of sheepishly giving them what they wanted, denying Christ and just going away, Peter, of course, responds by preaching the gospel to them and pointing out to them the fulfillment of ancient prophecy and the fulfillment of sacred scripture. Scripture that these men were supposed to have been the authorities on. We cannot afford to miss that there's at least some irony in all of this, isn't there? And so now they look a little bit more intently at Peter and John, and they begin to ask themselves some questions. How do men like this know these things? These men are uneducated. They are untrained in the rabbinic schools. They are but common men. How could they know these things? And how could they have fixed or healed this broken man whom they know to have been lame his entire life so that he was actually standing here before the Sanhedrin with them with a silly smile plastered across his face? How? And it really is a good question, isn't it? Unfortunately, I do not for one minute believe that these men have any interest in getting to the right answer. But they are asking themselves how it is that these men know such things with such depth and precision and clarity. How do they speak with such eloquence? They are common men, fishermen, and tax collectors. And why are they so fearless before the Sanhedrin? How is it that they are so bold and so without restraint in what they answer to us? Why are they not quaking in their sandals? 
Well, to answer that question, we need to look a little bit beyond just their present situation to the promise that Jesus had made to these men very shortly before his death. I want you to look back with me quickly at the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 21, for just a moment. We read it already this morning. First and foremost, we need to see that what is transpiring here before the Sanhedrin on this particular day is the fulfillment of Jesus' words to his disciples here in Luke. Back in chapter 20, Luke begins by telling us that Jesus had been then teaching in the temple. In fact, Luke tells us he had been preaching the gospel. And when the authorities of the temple came and they approached him with the same question that they were now, in Acts chapter 4, putting to Peter and John. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus puts his finger on their problem when he answers them with a question of his own. He asks them, you tell me something. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And of course, they start fretting. They start getting really nervous and they reason to themselves, well, if we say heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say men, then the people will stone us because they have been persuaded that John is a prophet. And so in the great cop-out of all time, they look at Jesus and they say, we don't know. We can't answer your question. And Jesus says in reply to them, then I will not tell you by whose authority I do these things. And you see the point in the exchange, right? They're not really searching for the truth. They fear men, not God. And so Jesus goes on then in the 20th chapter, into the 21st chapter, to begin teaching his followers through parables. Truths of the kingdom. And some of the disciples then begin to make observations to Jesus about the temple and, and, and the gracious nature of God's people and how donations were given and these beautiful stones were set one upon the other. And Jesus responds to them saying, These things which you see, the days will come when not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now he has their attention. And they ask him questions. When will these things be? And how will we know? What will be the sign of these things? Jesus gives some legitimacy to their question. He answers that there will be signs. There will be wars, rumors of wars, kingdoms rising up against kingdoms. There will be natural disasters, earthquakes, famines, pestilence. He says there will be fearful sights and great signs in the heavens. And he tells them not to be deceived because many are going to come saying they are the one who was to come. He says just know these signs are the beginning of the end. Then Jesus does something. Maybe you caught it this morning when we read it. He lays a very weighty prophecy on these men. He says to these men, however, you're worried about the end. (laughs) However, before any of these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you 
delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And listen, beloved, but it will turn out for you an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what what you will answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Beloved, I know that's a lot of setup this morning to simply say to you that here in Acts chapter 4, this is that. Do you understand? Luke does this again and again in this book. He knows the word of God, though this time he's not looking back very far, is he? He's looking back to the words that he had penned and the gospel according to Luke. And he's recognizing this situation for exactly what it is because they have laid hands upon them. They're in the very throes of being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. They have already been delivered to the synagogue and the prison. They're right now standing before the rulers of the temple. And what is the source of such courage and wisdom and conviction in the face of these rulers? Well, ultimately, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to go a little deeper than that. These men know the truth. Do you see? They know exactly what is transpiring, what is unfolding all around them. Jesus has already told them. And even in this moment, he's stirring up their recall. He will give them the words. He will fill them with boldness and wisdom that they will need in the face of their opposition. He will fill their mouths, which he created, with such bold and godly wisdom that their adversaries will be powerless to even contradict it. It is so certain that Jesus tells them that they are to spend none of their time worrying about any of these things. He says, I will supply exactly what you need precisely when you need it. What comfort! Right? There there is so much beautiful hope in that. Do you see it? Beloved in Christ, we must see it. Again, we're barely touching the edges of it. But this is certainly part of the hope of the gospel, isn't it? Do you see the providence of Almighty God in all of this? Because we must see it. Jesus is the reigning King of all creation. He's ruling from His heavenly throne. He is sustaining us and preserving us and causing us even to thrive for His glory. We are never for even a moment outside of His omnipotent and sovereign hands. It's very important to understand in the Christian life. Chance or misfortune 
has not brought this difficult circumstance upon these apostles. This was not bad timing. Do you see the providence of God here? And beloved, I want to tell you something this morning. We, you and I, are no different than they. We are still living in this same era, this same epoch of redemptive history. Chance has not brought you to whatever it is that you're facing currently in your life. Your trials. Your difficulties. The source of your pain and your frustration. Chance hasn't brought you to those things. Almighty God has. And he has supplied his precious grace for whatever it is that you are currently walking through by his providence. Do you believe that? The Christian life is not about simply manipulating your circumstances for what you believe or what you perceive to be the most favorable outcome for you. That's hard to wrap our minds around. Everything in us strains against it. But I want to tell you, that is not godly wisdom like we see here. This wisdom is supplied by the wonderful grace of God for the glory of God. And what a sweet provision it is. And undoubtedly, as Peter faces off with these men, this is what he remembers. This is what produces this otherworldly courage in this very moment of his life. He belongs to God. He lives to serve his king. And the king supplies all that he could ever need for those whom he has redeemed for that purpose. This is the calling of these apostles. They are called to be witnesses to the resurrected king. They must give witness. They must give testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's who they are. You understand? This is their identity. They are those who are with Jesus. They are testifying to the truth of Jesus Christ and His gospel. They have been given the Holy Spirit to equip them to be exactly what they are in this moment. Witnesses. And beloved, so too are we. Surely you see that here. This is what we are if we are truly the children of the King. Not apostles, of course, but witnesses. This is what we are called to do while we patiently await the return of our King. We are to be witnesses to His glorious salvation in the Gospel. That is your calling. The Gospel that saves sinners like you and I. We are those whose hope is entirely wrapped up in our resurrected King, King Jesus. We are part of a kingdom of witnesses. That's not something you attempt to balance with the 35 other things in your life that you're trying to be right now. I want to be clear. Everything is secondary to this. You are witnesses of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is such a a vivid and beautiful picture of biblical faith in action here. And we see it here being contrasted with the wisdom of the world. Have you noticed that? 
These men of the Sanhedrin, they are full of that. The wisdom of the world. And you see how it stacks up to the wisdom of God. They reason like men. They lean on their own understanding. You notice here in this deliberation of so-called spiritual giants that not one of them seeks God's face in prayer over anything transpiring in Jerusalem, let alone this situation with Peter and John. That alone is telling about the state of these men's souls. No, everything with them is in the moment for themselves. Everything with them is what benefits them the most right now. And specifically here, we see that they are displaying the opposite of the apostles. These apostles are displaying uncommon boldness and wisdom. So uncommon, in fact, that the Sanhedrin members themselves are the ones who notice it and point it out. They make everyone else leave. And they reason together. They mumble together that these men were with Jesus. They learned from Him. Listen to the way they speak. They speak like Him. And look clearly. They have worked a miracle with this man. It's undeniable. That's where any shred of actual wisdom with these men leaves. It ends with the facts. They restate the facts. That's as close as they get to wisdom. And then they make their deductions, not at all by godly wisdom, not with anything akin to boldness. Do you see what actually guides their decision here? Their fears. I want you to think about that for a moment. Though scripture is filled with the admonition to not be afraid. It's the most commanded, it's the most repeated command in all of scripture. Do not fear. These men are led by their fear and fear is not faith. These men are terrified by this situation. They judge by what they think benefits them the the most. Ignoring everything going on around them that is shouting, speaking loud and clear, both about grace and the glory of God, they say, this has to stop. We must stop this good news from spreading, from taking root. And foolishly, learning nothing about the boldness of faith that has been in front of their very faces, their plan is once again to threaten these men. To somehow scare them into silence. They've learned nothing. Faith cannot be frightened into silence. I want to consider two things most evident about the faith of Peter and John here. We've already been speaking of their uncommon boldness and wisdom. First, let's look at the boldness of biblical faith that is on display here in these men. Have you ever really considered it? You know, I think too often we mistake the world's brand of courage with what we see here. We think that the boldness of faith is something that we must dig down deep within ourselves and somehow find and pull up. Or that it's even something like grit. You know, real manly stuff, like John Wayne kind of stuff. Action hero stuff. Superhero stuff. Superhero courage. 
Courage that will not be moved by anything because it's simply way too tough to ever be afraid. You know, back in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, all right, the 70s too, I was growing up in the 70s too. We even had popular clothing that spoke to this brave philosophy on life. I can remember growing up in high school and everyone wearing the slogan, no fear. Came out of the motocross realm. No fear meant you hit that double jump at full throttle and you didn't care where you landed. You were just going to win, right? No fear. Everybody wore it on their clothing. Is that what this is? Is that what this is? Grit? Worldly courage? Of course not. This is much, much more effective than ever tricking yourself into believing yourself to be something that you are not. No, beloved, this fearlessness is based first upon knowing and then upon trusting. Does that sound familiar this morning? It should. The Heidelberg Catechism talks about this very question in question and answer 21. We probably know it by heart. We talk about it all the time. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure or certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also a hearty trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God merely of grace only for the sake of Christ's merit. Do you see? Because that is exactly what is being manifested here. This is not human grit. It certainly cannot be reduced to something as absolutely vapid and silly as manly machismo. This is knowing by the grace of God to the point of trusting Not just knowing that leads to wishing. Sure knowledge. Which leads to a real and hearty trust. That God's words are true. You might be saying to yourself, yeah, you know what, Steve, but what does hearty trust really look like? It looks exactly like what Peter and John are displaying here. Peter has no reason to fear. Do you understand that? He knows the king. Not just the king, the king of kings. He's walked with the king. He has spoken with the king. He knows the king and the king knows him. He has learned from the king. He's come to the place where he trusts the king wholeheartedly. Even in this very moment, Peter knows that this work This is the work of the king to give him an opportunity to witness to the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Peter has been made for this by the grace of God. His king, the king of kings, is on his throne. Peter's very purpose in life, the reason he is alive, is to point everyone he can to the truth of Jesus Christ and the precious hope of the gospel. He has been equipped by Almighty God Himself for that very work. What could He fear? 
The God of the universe is directing his every step. Giving to him his every word. Chasing away his every fear. What could he have to fear? Beloved, this is the boldness of true faith. Do you see it? Beloved, do you suppose that Almighty God has not given that kind of boldness to you and I? Of course He has. It goes hand in hand with faith. This is where we go when we feel our faith beginning to waver. Because we are weak. And we are fickle. And because we still do very often sin. We wear these prison houses of flesh while we await the return of our King. And so we must go continually to the Word of God to strengthen the faith that God has so graciously given to us. And this is where it feeds. Do you understand? We go here and we are reminded of just what we are living by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, this is the identity of the Christian. You are so much more than what you do for a vocation. You are so much more than your particular friend group. You are so much more than the community you grew up in. You are so much more than even your family line and your traditions. You are the children of the King. And by the grace of Almighty God, you have been placed by faith in union with Him. His righteousness is your righteousness. His obedience is called your obedience. You have been reconciled to Almighty God. You are the child of God. Do you understand? And this boldness is part of the wisdom of faith. Peter answers every charge with the wisdom of God Himself. God gave him a mouth, and God gave him the words to say. That was the promise. They say to him, you just need to stop. Stop saying the name and we'll let you go. Peter, in essence, says, you guys are the spiritual leaders? You guys are the spiritual leaders and you tell me whether I should obey you or God. And then he reminds them what really is at the heart of all of this. He says in verse 22, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Once again, I think we need to pause and see that Peter is challenging these men to think it through. This implies they need to think about what they themselves have just seen and heard. They need to go back and reconsider this Jesus of Nazareth. He says in effect, look, we're not dealing in theories here. We're not guessing as to what God may or may not be doing. We're not just playing at religion here, guys. This is what we've seen with our own eyes. This is what we've heard with our own ears. This is what we believe through the power of the Holy Spirit with our own hearts. We know this. 
We trust this. This is who we are. How can we ever be silent? Indeed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is faith in Jesus Christ. It's not some mystical thing that you must get better at practicing on Sundays. It's not yours to even improve upon. It's not something you turn on on Sunday morning and then turn back off, you know, until you need it again. It's not something that you pull out of your Christian bag of tricks when the going in life gets a little tough. It's knowing that leads to trusting. Have you heard these things? Have you seen these things? Trusting that leads to peace and comfort and joy even in the face of death. Boldness. Is this faith of Peter here your faith? The faith once and for all the saints. The Word of God says it is. Will you run to Jesus and live in it? Beloved, I pray that we will. We need to bring our doubts here. We need to bring our fears here. We need to bring ourselves here and live by what we know because of God-given faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord.